Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Welcome back to The Long Way. Whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, do check out our previous episodes at thelongway.ca. And don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to The Long Way on whichever platform you're hearing this podcast. Well, as far as I'm concerned, nothing tells the story of the COVID-19 pandemic for me quite like the roll of the dice or moving pieces for one of my favorite activities, playing board games. But you know, there's more to board games than just fun and games. One thing I don't like to hear is families will say, oh, we don't like board games because we tried this board game and we didn't like it. Like, you know, that's like me saying, oh, I don't like sports because I tried tetherball and it was no good. That's our feature guest, Jonathan Kay, a Toronto-based editor and podcaster for Quillette, a National Post columnist and a book author. In 2019, he published Your Move, What Board Games Teach Us About Life, co-authored with Joan Moriarty. Coming up a little later in this podcast, you'll hear from our field reporter, Peter Stockland, who has a wordplay and gameplay-filled conversation with Ray Pennings, executive vice president of think tank Cardis. Now, regular listeners will know all about Cardis, which puts on this podcast. We're a Canadian think tank based in Hamilton, Ontario, with work that's dedicated to building the common good. So our work revolves around strengthening the social institutions that lie between the marketplace and government, Family, education, workplaces, neighborhoods, faith communities, the list goes on. And you know what? Board games touch on several of those areas in various ways. So let's get to it then with our feature guest. Jonathan Kay, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Way. Happy to be here. Now, when you co-wrote your move, What Board Games Teach Us About Life, you drew some lessons uh, about group dynamics, about ethics, you know, human behavior, how we uh, interact with each other when we play games. But I, I wonder if you were writing that book in the midst of a pandemic, sort of in today's circumstances, would you write any of your portion of it differently? Well, unfortunately, board game cafes and board game meetups more generally they've been completely destroyed by COVID-19 because the the act of sitting across a table from someone for hours on end and laughing and arguing and having fun and, you know, doing all the things that, that go along with board games, uh, that's like a perfect Petri dish for COVID-19. So what's happened in the last year is that board game culture has migrated online. And I mean, I'd always played board games online to some extent because some of my favorite opponents or childhood friends who, who in one case lives in New Zealand. Uh, but now I just, there's, there's so much online board gaming I do that um, I think it's going to permanently affect the habits of a lot of board gamers. I'm not sure a lot of local board game groups are going to reconstitute themselves because a lot of people are going to be so busy with their online groups, uh, including in some cases online groups of, of people in their neighborhood. Like some of the people I play online games with are people who live a block away. <laughs> well, that's interesting because um, one of the, I guess, one of the best things about board games that I've found, and I've been a, a board game fan for a long time, is the 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 human connection. And I too have seen a, a massive increase in my online uh, 
board gaming, uh, so to speak, through a you know Vassal or, or some other server like that, where you can play these games virtually, uh, either with strangers or with people you know. I really only play with people I know. Um, it's not the same, though. You know, you 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 do get some of the same feel. You're seeing the the board game represented. You are uh, still interacting with other, with others. You may have like kind of like a some kind of online call on at the same time, so you're still chatting about stuff and whatnot. But it's not the same as actually being around a table with each other, moving pieces, rolling dice if the game involves that, uh, flipping cards, all that sort of thing. There's none of the none of the tangible aspect of it. Yeah, um, it depends on the game. I think there are certain games um, that have like that have a strongly communal flavor to them. Even if they're not cooperative games per se, they're, they're competitive games. But I'm thinking of games. I don't know if your listeners know them, but games like Robo Rally, um, where's like robots fighting each other, or there's a game called I like called Roll for the Galaxy, where there's like a very sometimes toward the end of the game people are rolling like 15 or 20 dice all at once and it's it's like makes this uh hilarious clatter and people like it stuff like that is, is a lot more fun uh in real life you know irl as they say yeah. that said there are certain games like very cerebrally intense board game like war games there's a world war one game called paths of glory that i've started to to learn where I'm not sure how much it suffers from the migration from physical play to online play because some of these games, like whole stretches of time pass when you're playing them at a tournament or something where no one's saying anything anyway. Um, it's just everyone's doing these calculations in their head. So I wouldn't say it's better online. It's, I'd still prefer to be doing it person to person, but some of those games, it, it's almost as good online. Um, and, and, and that's one of the reasons that I fear people will be, they'll be too lazy to go back to go into tournaments and stuff. Cause they say, well, you know, I have all the software on my computer. I've learned all the software I've zoom and, uh, why don't I just stick with this? Which would be a shame because th there are certain intangibles that, and, and, fr and creating friendships <clears throat> that, you know, online play is great for playing with people you already know. I don't think it's as useful for creating new friendships. Like all of my gaming relationships, I mean, at one point, these were just people I met, you know, at tournaments and stuff or local board game cafes, and they became regulars. So I'm depending on that regular group to play. But if I want to make new gaming friends eventually, yeah, I got to go out and into the real world. Yeah. I mean, the virtual world is, is helpful in, in many respects, and it can replace to a degree. I guess what we're missing uh, during a pandemic, but um, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a complete replacement. I, I guess I would suspect that, that eventually let's assume that things do go back to normal and the pandemic is well and truly behind us. Uh, I think over time people will start to migrate back to, to, you know, doing what we normally and very naturally do which is congregate together in the same physical space I, I mean we've seen through the pandemic actually that uh people demand that and sometimes they you know they're civilly disobedient um not necessarily over board gaming but but over other over other things but there's a there's there's kind of an overlap in that uh in that need and that's being expressed there 
You know, it's interesting. I have a friend of mine. He's actually a board gaming friend of mine. He lives in New Zealand, and New Zealand has no COVID now. Um, it's just it's an island country, and they've managed to get rid of it. So it's a good case study. And and he told me. I asked him. I said, "Has has has the fabric of life returned to to normal, or are people still like wary and they're still maybe not wearing masks, but they're still you know physical distancing?" He said, "No, no, absolutely not. Everything has gone back to normal." You know, he went to all these holiday parties. People are hugging and kissing. And um, so based on the New Zealand case study, which is mm -hmm. one of the few case studies we have of, I mean, basically a post-COVID country just because of their weird geographical position. I think eventually, I think people are going to go back to the way it was before. Maybe more so because board games, puzzles, uh, art projects, like in my family, the dining room table has just become this kind of, um, riot of, of of hobby stuff like jigsaw puzzles. I mean, it's, it's not a game, but it's it's you know they're selling like crazy. All of this stuff. Uh, I think there's going to be a boom in, in this stuff for years to come because people didn't go to bars. They haven't gone to fancy restaurants. They haven't gone to sporting events. They figured out all these cheaper and, to my mind, like way more engaging and fun and socially rewarding ways of interacting with other people. Mm -hmm. So you might get like boom times for these kind of, of diversions. Well, I mean, I have seen just in my own family uh, an increase in board gaming. I'd be lying if I if I said that I didn't encourage it, but I would have encouraged pandemic or not. Uh, but the pandemic actually just gave us an extra an extra motivation for that. And so we've actually used, it's interesting that you mentioned the dining room table. We've meant, we've used the dining room table more for board gaming than we have for dining. We use the kitchen table for dining, uh, but we can, we're, we're blessed that way and that we have that space, but um, it has been sort of an increasing uh, part of our lives. Now it's not for every family. I'll, I'll admit, you know, some families are more prone to, Toss the the board game in the air over a game of Monopoly that went bad. Um, personally, I prefer games that are much more complex than Monopoly. Um, but at least in in our family, you know, we have definitely connected over board games and maybe spent more time with each other than we than we normally would have. But we did it in a you know a po positive and productive and relationship building way. Yeah, and as I think what you say about the dynamics in different families is um, is important. Uh, my family, I have three daughters, and they're really they're they have they're not competitive at all in this kind of thing. So my challenge has been getting them like interested in board games. Once they play play board games, it wasn't uh, an issue with them being competitive. But I know that there in some families, um, I know some people like the sons are like a little too engaged, like they get really competitive. <laughs> Or they're perfectionists. Like I played with one one set of parents and their kid, and the kid like got really upset if he realized he hadn't made the like the perfect move. It wasn't even about winning or losing. He was just like um, he just held himself to this really high standard, which is which I I mean I do sometimes if I'm at a tournament or something. But it's you don't want to see that in a kid, right? Like you want to see them having fun and and whatnot. Um, so yeah, you it's it isn't just about being engaged with the games. It's about being engaged in, in, in with the games in a way that's sustainable for family life. Uh, and sometimes, by the way, with really competitive families 
or or they have competitive members, I recommend people play collaborative games like Pandemic, which is you either win the game or lose the game as a unit. You're not competing against each other. You're basically competing against the game. Uh, it's so so that style of cooperative game sometimes is more suitable for certain people. I per, I don't like cooperative games myself. I for a variety of reasons, but um, it's one thing I don't like to hear is families will say, "Oh, we don't like board games because we tried this board game and we didn't like it." Like you know, that's like me saying, "Oh, I don't like sports because I tried tetherball and it was no good." Like <laughs> you know, like playing you know playing a hardcore war game versus playing like a party game. Uh, you know, the kind of party game where you I don't know, you put like a hat on your head and there's a word and people have to guess it or, you know, Scrabble or chess. Like, I mean, board games cover a wide variety of of, of personality types and competition levels and, and levels of intellectual engagement. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I personally, I, I'm not a big fan of of party games. I prefer historical themes or things that kind of take you into a... Uh, an imaginary sandbox, I guess, where you can um, you can try stuff, um, see if a a military strategy works for you that didn't work for for someone else. Anyway, I don't want to I don't want to go down that that rabbit hole. But well, um, I mean that's that is a personality type. Like yeah, the kind of people I played board games with are also the kind of people who love analyzing the game after. Oh yeah, and like there's this one guy, my friend Steve, is like, we'll play a scenario and we'll spend a scenario like we'll play this this war game called squad leader where the games are divided into scenarios and we'll often spend it seems more time analyzing it than playing it whereas if i ever do that with my wife like you know we'll play (laughs) like she's like she doesn't like the game's over why are we talking about it and uh and it's not like i'm i'm arguing about the game i'm just like oh yeah remember you did that move and then i did this move she's like who the hell cares like was (laughs) like just um but yeah but i i enjoy that stuff to me that's part of the fun but that's definitely part of the fun. And one of the other aspects of gaming that I've sort of come to appreciate more, I suppose, lately or over the last year has been when you have a game that has a, a theme, sort of a reality-based theme that, that you find interesting, it does spur you to learn more about that outside the game. I just recently started playing a game called Pan Am, about Pan Am Airways, and you Anyway, I don't want to explain the whole game now. You can go on YouTube and, and see all about it. But um, it's it it brought me into the world of Pan Am, like from the 1920s to the late 1960s uh, and the airline industry. But it also spurred me to read more about that. I, I can see some educational value uh, in games, maybe not necessarily in all of them, but those historical contexts can spur our curiosity. You know, I, I hadn't heard of Pan Am, uh, but now I'm looking at it. It's like, wow! I need, <laughs> it's great. I need, I need to buy great. that. I need to buy that. Uh, it goes both ways. So there, there are definitely games I've played that have have really got me interested in the historical period. So uh, there's a, a designer called Phil Eklund, and he created a game called Pax Renaissance, which is about you play the role of a uh, 16th century European financier who's backing different like religious factions and political factions in Europe. I mean, it's just it's it's a somewhat complicated game, uh, but you're playing it. It's like, oh wow, this is really interesting. Like you know, the Ottoman Turks had, had a really interesting society, and 
Um, and that led me to play another game called Here I Stand, which was, um, oh, yeah. you know, uh, I, these are, every game is its own subculture, so I won't just keep listing off games, but it, it definitely affected the books I was reading. Like, I, I, I remember I read, I, I read a biography of Francis I of France, like something I never would have picked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but because his reign happened in the early 16th century, happened to coincide with the action in this game. I was, and, and then, you know, I went back to my game partners. I said, hey, you know, you know the stuff we do in the game where you know, this line of succession and different, like, th- this is all true. Like, it's all in this book. It was really, and then the opposite happens where I'm reading a book and I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. I wish, is there a game about this? Uh, and sometimes it's unsatisf- unsatisfying. So I just recently was reading this book about the wars of Latin American liberation in the late 18th and early 19th century. And it was super fascinating. You know, Simon Bolivar was 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 a protagonist, but there were also dozens of other fascinating figures. Uh, you know, perfect for a uh, you know a card based historical game, um, like like Paths of Glory for that matter, the, the same kind of game system. Uh, and I was disappointed that I couldn't really find a game that matched that, which is too bad. Uh, in fact, um, you know, one day I'd, I'd love to start. Take, I, I designed a game or two, but never published. I'd love to to spend more time designing games because this is exactly the kind of game that I would love to to help create. Yeah, um, I've I've started designing games and then never really finished the project. But perhaps that's it's a hard. Uh, it's harder. That's than a personality fault, maybe. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's harder than it looks, right? It is. It is, and it takes a lot of testing. Um, but but. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's, there's so much more to to talk about. I could easily go on for hours and hours uh, about games, but if you could just very quickly summarize, kind of what what the most meaningful or the most important aspect of board gaming is for you personally, uh, what would you say? I think I'm going to borrow a phrase that uh, a friend of mine named Andy here in Toronto once said about board games, which he said. Well, he was referring to a particular this game squad leader that we both love. He said it's the only thing he does that is 100% intellectually immersive. Like he's not thinking about anything else. He's not thinking about work or um, you know any sort of existential ennui that that everyone succumbs to every now and again. Like it's just he's in that world. The world is defined and by this set of cardboard counters on a board and and for that period of time which passes so quickly by the way like i you know this yeah. five hour game seems to go in about 20 minutes um like nothing else nothing else is in the world and and that that is that's that's a rush that's that's and some people get that feeling from sports and i i mean i get that feeling from other things too sometimes like you know spending time with friends and my family and, and um but but it's a different kind of immersion that you get from board games. Like it's a purely intellectual immersion and there's no emotional. Well, I mean, I guess there's always some emotional aspect to everything in life, but you know, it's because you're in an imaginary universe, you're not worried about, you know, it's not like you're playing hockey or something. You're worried about getting hurt or um, you're with your kids and you're worried, you know, know, you'll say something and they'll get upset. Like it's just, um, there's these specified rules and your mind can just wander in this world until it's time to come out of it because someone has won and lost. I, uh, I, I love that feeling. That's great. Jonathan Kay, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. 
Jonathan and I mentioned quite a few board games, which maybe you might find intriguing. I suspect there are some listeners who are admirers of Protestant reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin, so uh, those listeners' ears may have perked up at the title Here I Stand, and yes, that is a board game about the Reformation in Europe, and Frankly, Catholics might find it intriguing too. Regardless, I've got a list of the board games we mentioned with links in the episode description on www.thelongway.ca. So if you're curious, you can check them out there. Now, not everyone who catches the board gaming bug does so early in life, but Cardis Executive Vice President Ray Pennings has certainly been playing since he was a young lad, starting with chess. And as field reporter Peter Stockland tells us, well, it's been an education for Ray. Resurgent interest in board games clearly predates pandemic-driven boredom and the need to find something riskier to do than staring out the window to monopolize our time. But the coincidental timing of COVID-19 and the Netflix smash hit The Queen's Gambit has done more to burst the nerdy bonds of chess popularity than generations of pocket protector-wearing pawn pushers could ever have imagined. According to Bloomberg.com, the seven-episode series was watched by 62 million households in only 28 days after its release in late 2020, tops among Netflix-scripted limited series. And listen to this, mate. Goliath Games saw its sales of chess sets spike 1,100% in the same period. Here at Cardus, our acknowledged chess king is Executive Vice President Ray Pennings, who keeps staff lunch hour conversations lively with tales of his youthful prowess on the 64-square board. Chess was actually part of my youth and my teenage uh, years, and I played competitively. And uh, we had a pretty active chess club of 20 to 30 that one or two uh, lunch hours a week would play. And we had a chess team that competed against other schools locally and in tournaments. And I was so, and usually that was only four to six per school. And I was typically on the chess team uh, going to that. So I was, I was a fairly competitive player uh, in, in high school. Unlike orphan chess prodigy Beth Harmon in The Queen's Gambit, however, Pennings confesses his youthful enthusiasm for chess was drained away by one particularly head-to-head contest in which he was left with sinking feelings as his opponent stepped out partway into the match. When the contender returned, it was he, not Pennings, who was flushed with success. Well, this is, this is evidence that one does not always have the foresight when you're sharing lunchtime conversations of how stories will come back to haunt you. Um, hence, I'm on the other end of this call. But the, but the story is this. I'm at a high school tournament, and there is a particular player, and him and I, uh, we are, I think, in grade 12 or 13 at this time. So we have, for four or five years now, frequently been in the semi- met each other in the semifinals or the finals of almost every tournament. And so we, we come to know each other and respect each other as players. I was in this particular match, and I think we had, um, I think it was the final, so I think we had an hour on the clock each, so it was a maximum two-hour game. And I was in, I was feeling pretty good. I was in a winning position, and he had about 20 minutes left on his clock, and uh, he excused himself to go to the washroom with his clock running. 
and left for seven or eight minutes and came before he came back. And I was so flustered along the way that I had to be, for him to have the confidence to do this, I had to be missing something. And um, yes, at the end of the day, he did win that game, much to my embarrassment. Some might think this would have to be Penning's personal Game of Thrones. Yet he says the upset that came down the pipe that day was not the defining experience in all the wins and losses of his checkered chess career. Like the fictional Harmon, who is defeated in grand style by the dashing but dastardly Russian world chess champion Vasily Borgov, Pennings knows what it's like to suffer ignominious defeat at the hands of a true master. It was a tournament of 100 or so players, and it was like the top 8 or 12 in this tournament were going to get to play this grand master simultaneously at the public library on a Saturday afternoon. It was advertised in the newspaper and everybody was welcome to attend. And so anyway, I succeeded in step one. I, I finished high enough in that tournament to be one of the select eight. And I remember coming on that Saturday afternoon absolutely resolved, as with, were the other seven high school chess players, that uh, we, uh, we had achieved some degree of proficiency. Suffice it to say, the entire exercise took probably less than 20 minutes. He played all of us at the same time and absolutely destroyed us. He walked up and down. The rule was it wasn't the clock. The rule was you had to have your next move ready when he came. You had to move in front of him. And he took all of like seven seconds to analyze the board and give his new move in response. And he moved to the other 10 people. And lo and behold, he was back a minute or a minute and a half later. And I was scarcely ready with my next move. And very quickly, he, he made me feel uh, very much like a kindergarten player to his, um, to his mastery. In the aftermath, Pennings chose to give his chess dreams a good night's rest and turn to other pursuits such as risk and diplomacy. He issues what sounds to me like a double Dutch denial, that he's drawn to board games by having grown up being bored as a lifelong devoted Toronto Maple Leafs fan. There is something about the satisfaction of a board game in which the game is an entity to itself. And there is an existential delight simply in winning the game. And similarly, the Toronto Maple Leafs have provided me wonderful delights in life, whether it's Daryl Sittler's six goals and four assists, whether it's the Doug Gilmore things of the 90s, or whether, whether it was last Saturday night when the Toronto Maple Leafs quite handily beat the Montreal Canadiens. They all were quite, um, quite delightful events. For The Long Way, I'm Peter Stockland. Well, I'm with Ray on this one. I love seeing the Leafs beat the Montreal Canadiens. I know for myself, playing games has been a welcome respite from troubling pandemic news amidst restrictions that have separated us from so many others. I found that games brought me closer to some folks, uh, my family specifically, but also university buddies from decades ago with whom I've reconnected over virtual board games. Sometimes the things that strengthen family and social bonds don't actually require copious amounts of research and statistics. They just happen organically. I'm thinking of historically themed games like Diplomacy or Here I Stand or the Cold War-based Twilight Struggle. I can see little sparks for educational opportunities, whether just personally or in the context of homeschooling or virtual schools. But here's what I want to know. What's your story? Have any particular board games been a part of your pandemic coping strategy? Let me know at media at cardus.ca. Cardus is C-A-R-D-U-S. I would love to hear from you or leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to like and subscribe to The Long Way. 
Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Prusilidis. Thank you.